Today I want to uh, I want to zoom in <clears throat> on an important point in Colossians 3, 1 to 4, but before we can go there, we need to go to John 11, the Gospel of John chapter 11, beginning in verse 17. Verse 17, it says, Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? That's, that's a question I want to ask us this morning. Do you believe this? Do you believe this declaration of Jesus? And if you do, if you believe this, um, does it change your life? Has it transformed your life? Is it transforming your life? It should. Don't you think it probably transformed Lazarus's life when he came back from the dead? Don't you think there was a work of sanctification taking place in Lazarus's life? When he came back from the dead, when the, the resurrected power of Christ was, was granted to him and he was brought forth from the dead to live again for the glory of Jesus, don't you think it changed Lazarus? I think it changed him. And I think that same truth should change us. And that's what Paul tells us in Colossians 3. Go there with me now. Colossians 3, 1 to 4, beginning in verse 1. The Apostle Paul writes to the church at Colossae, he says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. This is some motivation here for sanctification. Paul's declaring that Christ's resurrection is the basis of our eternal salvation and the hope of our sanctification. If you look there, he's basically giving there to the church at Colossae a command. We're commanded by God in this passage to set our minds on this hope. And the implication is if your minds are set upon your position in Christ eternally, it'll transform you here presently. That's the idea. He's dealing with all the false teachers and the asceticism and legalism. He's saying, look, if you set your mind on what Christ has accomplished, it'll change you from the inside out. Your motives will be different. And consequently, your lives will be conformed more and more into the one you have set your mind upon. This, this eternal hope that we see here in Colossians and in John that I read earlier, this eternal hope will transform the way we live presently. 
I think that it truly did change Lazarus's present condition when he came from the grave. I think that he realized that he now has true life in Christ. And therefore, he wanted to live in light of the one who gave him life. And if we stop and think about that for a minute, I think it will help us understand the doctrine of sanctification. You have been given freedom in Christ to live for the glory of God. You're no longer a slave to sin and to self and to Satan. You've been set free. You're positioned with God in the heavenlies in Christ. That should affect our daily lives. We live for the glory of the one who gave us life. That's, I think, the motive for sanctification. I think any other motive will lead to legalism. I think this is the motive that produces sanctification from the heart that's worshipful and thankful. I think it's this eternal hope that secures our hearts and transforms our lives. I think it transforms us when we grow weary. When you feel like you cannot keep on doing what you're doing for the glory of God and you think that your, your strength is dried up. Well, good news. You have the power of the resurrected Christ working in your heart. Trust in that. Lean upon that when you're tempted to give up or tempted to sin. Look at what Christ did to conquer those things for you. And if you really believe in Christ, you must believe that his spirit and his power, his resurrected power, is at work in you, quickening you. That's what gives you the desire to repent. That's what gives you the desire to be a witness. That's what gives you the desire to turn away from that which is sinful, that which is unholy. Don't you know when you go and do whatever you do, you're taking Christ with you. That's a, that's a really good motive for not going into sin without any protection. You know that Christ is there. That should guard your hearts and your minds and your actions. I think it's important for us to understand sanctification is connected to Christ's resurrection. That's what Paul's saying here. You have been raised up with Christ. Therefore, live like you belong to this risen Lord and Savior. So as a result of that, what I want to do right now is, is take you into Scripture so that you can set your minds on things above by studying what God says about Jesus' resurrection. And again, if you, if you focus upon this truth, if you ponder this truth long enough and look at it deep enough, you'll see how it will affect your daily lives in a very profound way, a very evidential way. When you realize that the resurrected Lord is with you and has equipped you and will empower you to honor him, that's why he saved you, then you will live differently here in this world. So what I want to do this morning, here's your outline, okay? If you didn't get a, a bulletin back there, it's fine. Just write this down. God's word teaches us that the resurrection of Jesus is, number one, historically powerful. Historically powerful. The resurrection of Jesus is number two, supernaturally verifiable. It's supernaturally verifiable. And the resurrection of Jesus is number three, physically hopeful. Physically hopeful. And fourthly, the resurrection of Jesus is personally transformational. Now, I've just labeled these this way so you can kind of hang your hat on them, okay? And you can write these down and go back and 
reference these uh, scriptures we're going to go to. The resurrection of Jesus is historically powerful, supernaturally verifiable, and physically hopeful, and personally transformational. That's where we're going with this. That's what the last point there in Colossians was really about. Let's begin by looking at the first one here. God's Word teaches us that, number one, the resurrection of Jesus is historically powerful. All right, the resurrection of Jesus is disclosed historically in scriptural prophecies. Throughout the entire Old Testament, we see this. But here in particular, in one passage of Scripture, one chapter of Scripture, I think it's made very, very clear. And it's, it's very amazing what we see in the prophet Isaiah's prophecy in Isaiah 53. In Isaiah 53, what's interesting to me is the entire plan of redemption that was foretold by God through the prophet Isaiah is basically summarized here in this one chapter. The plan of redemption, what God would do in sending forth his son to be his arm, if you will, as we look at the first verse, to be his arm of power and rescue coming into the world is laid out here. What Christ would do as our substitute is laid out here. What Christ would do through his conquering death is laid out here. And what Christ would do in his resurrection is laid out here. It's all in this chapter. It's fascinating. I'm going to read through the whole chapter, make a couple of comments along the way so you can actually see some some distinctions in this. But just listen and be amazed. I, I really want us just to be amazed by God's word here this morning. In the first three verses, the first two verses in particular, we see God speaking in this prophecy about the incarnation of Jesus, about God sending his Savior to mankind. Look what it says here in verse 1. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The strength of the Lord, the rescue of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. And this is speaking of the incarnation of Jesus. God the Son taking on flesh, coming into this world to become our substitute, which is spoken of here in the next few verses, basically from verse 3 all the way down to verse 10, we don't just see the incarnation of Christ, we see the humiliation of Christ. The humbling of God the Son to become our substitutionary Savior. Look what it says here in verse 3. This, this one who came from God, the one who came with the power of God, who yet did not look like the Savior of men outwardly, yet he came just like us physically, It says, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hid their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes, we are healed. 
All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he will see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. This humble, incarnate Savior that was pure and undefiled was taking our place, dying our death. God the Father was crushing God the Son on our behalf. Because of our guilt, he bore the weight of our sins. Physically, incarnationally and humbly, without crying out, stop, without crying out, this is unjust. He kept his mouth silent and he was the only one who could have truly said this is unjust. Had this been you or I, it would have been just that God would crush us. But Christ and his love for us kept his mouth shut as he died upon the cross. But it's not just the the incarnation and the humiliation of Christ that we see here. We also see the prophecy of his resurrection here. Look what it says further in verse 11. Out of the anguish of his soul, he, meaning God the Father, shall see and be satisfied by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, that's Jesus, Make many be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death and was murdered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. God was satisfied with this sacrifice And it speaks of the servant who would actually live to intercede, live after this all takes place. Because he is the ongoing savior of God's people. In this prophecy, we see, as I said, the entire plan of redemption foretold about Christ. We see what he did in his amazing incarnation, his humiliating sacrifice in our place. And we also see The power of his glorious bodily resurrection spoken of here. All these are revealed in his story, in history, and they're revealed here for us for a purpose. You know why this was put here? This was put here for the people of God in the Old Testament. When they would read this, you understand, when when they heard this prophecy, they were wandering. They were away from God's will. They were straying like that sheep that's mentioned there. This was given 
to turn their hearts back to God. This was given to transform their daily lives, to give them consolation. They would change the way they live. Look what it goes on to say in Isaiah 54. This was given to cultivate faith in them and repentance in them. Look what it says. Sing, O barren one, who did not bear, break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who, you who have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent and let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes. For you will spread abroad to the right and to the left. And your offspring will possess the nations and will people the desolate cities. Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood. You will remember no more. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. I will gather you, he says in verse 8. I'll gather you in overflowing anger for a moment. I hid my face from you, but... With everlasting love, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. This prophecy was given to cultivate sanctification, to cultivate hope in the resurrected Savior that was coming to Israel. And that's what we see happening in Colossians 3. When we read that passage, we saw there that God commands us, just as he was commanding the people of God in the Old Testament, to set their minds on this hope. Set your minds on the hope of the one who died for you, to gather you in, your Redeemer, your Savior. And when you do that, it'll cultivate a joyful transformation in your life. I truly believe that. I truly believe the more we contemplate the gospel the more we look upon the one who not only lived for us, he died for us, but he rose to justify us, to declare us righteous through his righteousness. His sacrifice that was given on our behalf was accepted by God the Father. Therefore, all who trust in him and repent of their sins are secured forever and accepted by God. That, to me, biblically speaking, according to Scripture, is the motive of sanctification. That should make us as Christians want to live holy lives pleasing to the Lord, right? And I would just ask you this as we're thinking through this. If you have no desire for holiness, if you have no desire for repentance, can you truly say that you have been born again and empowered by Christ's resurrected spirit? By his resurrected life? No. You cannot say that. The one who created the world came to die in our place, rose victoriously to secure us for eternity. I don't think he's going to leave us off on sanctification. If the one who had the power to do all that 
can change the world in the future, recreate this planet, I do believe that he has the power to transform us progressively into his image presently. And to live otherwise is to basically (laughs) tromp the blood of Christ underfoot as if it's nothing. I pray that's not the case here with any of us. But I also pray that the more you think about this, the more you would long to live for the glory of Jesus, trusting in his resurrected power that will quicken you. Man, isn't it great when he gives you repentance? Isn't it great when you have, you have sin? And listen, when we sin as Christians, we do so willfully. The devil didn't make us do it. TV didn't make us do it. The media didn't make us do it. We choose to do it. And listen, we we choose to do it knowing that we need to repent of it. But isn't it kind of God? Isn't it gracious of God? Rather than allowing us to live in that sin, isn't it gracious of him and his Holy Spirit to focus in on that sin and give us conviction so that we will repent of that sin and we'll turn back to honoring him? Isn't that good of God? It's not a matter of just being born again and get to go to heaven. No, he wants us to be conformed presently into Christ's image for his glory. So I am thankful for that this morning. This historic testimony of the resurrection of Christ should cause us to rejoice. Because it was promised in the old and it was fulfilled in the new. And we're living in it presently by God's grace. Now, secondly, God's word teaches us that the resurrection of Jesus is supernaturally verifiable. Now, that's kind of a strange way to put it, but that's the best way I could do it. It's supernaturally verifiable. What I mean by that is it was declared supernaturally. The resurrection of Jesus was declared supernaturally. And and what I mean by that more specifically is this. It was declared angelically. You realize the first to announce the resurrection were angels. Now, now. We throw that word angels out there a lot, and we we talk about it as Christians, but just think about it for a moment. A specially designed messenger of God who dwells in the holiest of holies all the time before God, worshiping him, comes to this planet and appears. Folks, that's supernatural. And it's verified to us here in Scripture. I just want you to notice this. There's a supernatural nature to their declaration because of who they are. These angelic beings are delivering this. And again, in the grace of God, they're delivering it to man. You know, and I know that the angels, as we read Scripture, you know, they look at our salvation with wonder. Don't you know that they were amazed that man didn't believe Jesus' own testimony, that he would rise from the grave? And they're showing up going, What? (laughs) Of course he's arisen. That's what he told you. He's God. And don't you know there was a sense of astonishment in the angels who hear the word of God and believe every syllable. And yet here were men and women who had heard the incarnate Christ speak and tell these things. And they didn't believe. They didn't know what to make of it. So God in his mercy sends angels supernaturally to verify it. They declare, we'll look at Luke 24, they declare in Luke 24, 1-9, to that Jesus Christ had risen. And I'll, I'll say this, 
not that just Jesus Christ had risen. Importantly, Jesus Christ has risen bodily, physically. Proving that death had no authority over him, that he was innocent. The wages of sin is death. Death could not hold Christ because he was sinless. He died in our place. Death came to him because of us, but it had no authority over him. It had no power to hold him in the grave. There was no decay in Jesus. He had not suffered the effects of the fall in that sense. It had no power over him. And his body came forth from the grave. Look what it says in Luke 24, 1 to 9. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. They had found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body, the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, again, proving that they hadn't listened clearly to Christ. Where could he be? You know, I mean... Wow. And, you know, I, I, I read stuff like this and you read stuff like this and you think, what's wrong with those people? But you know what? We would have done the same thing. How often do we hear the word of God from Scripture and we doubt? That's exactly what they did. But praise God, through Christ, even our doubts are forgiven. They were perplexed. So God did something supernatural. Behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be delivered in the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Look at this, folks. This, this supernatural declaration, verifiable su- supernatural revelation, it transformed those who came to the tomb that day. Immediately they left and began to declare what the angels had told them, which was repeating what Jesus had told them. They were unashamed of this resurrected testimony. And they were declaring it boldly. Now, could you just imagine yourself? This is you. It happens today, let's say. Would you run out of here and start telling people that the one you've been listening to, serving, following as your master, as your teacher, he just rose from the grave? All right, that would be a little strange. Yet these ladies were not ashamed. They, they had been given this message, the supernatural message from God, that Jesus did exactly what he said he would do, and it changed these ladies. This was a divine message that these angels brought to man. I think it's a message that these angels were just waiting on. They're just on the edge of their seat, so to speak, in heaven going, okay, all right, the Garden of Gethsemane, okay, come on, come on, you know, next step, next step, okay, um, the grave, let's go. You know, they took off. They were ready to declare this message. This message was supernatural. This message was beyond human comprehension. And it took angelic messengers to deliver it. And these angelic messengers delivered it, I believe, because that's what they were created for. They were created to testify to the glory of Jesus Christ. So they rush to the tomb. 
They were ready to declare this. This message, I think, was something that they had longed to declare because it vindicated the holiness of Jesus, their creator, and our incarnate savior. The whole time his life is being lived out here physically on the earth, men are doubting. Men are accusing him of having a demon. The Pharisees did that. The angels are going, what? This is God, the Son. And the proof that he was holy and innocent and the Savior of sinners was given to us at the resurrection. And they rushed there to declare it. I told you guys this. This is what Jesus said. Rejoice. Don't you think about this sometimes? Maybe, maybe I'm the only one. Maybe Nate and I are the only ones who think about stuff like this. But I, I think about the angels during the incarnate life of Christ here on, on earth. And I think that you know, they, they would be eager at times to, to rush in and help him physically. You know, as a child, you've got you, you to think about this. He was tempted in every way, yet without sin. That means he was bullied he was mocked because he wouldn't join in on the things that the other kids joined in on, right? He was mocked. He was ridiculed. He was despised. He was forsaken. Don't you think the angels are sitting there in heaven going, how long, O Lord, let us go. Ten thousand. We'll go. We'll take care of him. But they couldn't. Had they done that, the resurrection wouldn't have taken place. They did step in at times, though, did they not? It just shows you the eagerness, I think, that they had to serve Jesus. They stepped in in Mark 1, 13, when he was being tempted in the wilderness. Mark 1, 13 says, well, verse 12 says, The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. The angels were seeking to care for his physical needs. He was out there suffering and physically frightened. He was going through that temptation on our behalf, and the angels were eager to minister to him. Now, it also says in Luke 22 that the angels came to him in the garden before the crucifixion. In Luke 22:39, it says, And when he came out, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him, and when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling to the ground. The angels were longing to intervene on Christ's behalf during his beating, during his trial, during his hanging upon the cross. Don't you know that they were eager to come to his side? But they waited. God waited to send them until the appropriate time. He waited to send them until they could declare the good news. The one who was humbled and beaten and died, he lives. He lives. And that's right. And he lives forevermore, not just to give us the hope of heaven, but he's interceding for us presently to transform us here to be his messengers like these angels. 
to be declaring His goodness and His glory like these angels. The angels were created for this. We were created for this. You understand that? This is what we will do forever in glory. We will be declaring the resurrection of Jesus Christ, our Redeemer. That's the song of heaven. Look at Revelation 5. This is the song that the angels sing, and we will sing forever. This will be our anthem. This will be our praise. And as I think about this, as I think about this text, I don't want to wait to heaven to do this. Do you? This should be on our tongues. This should be in our hearts. We should be singing the song with the angels here. Look what it says. Revelation 5, 11. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a, notice, a loud voice. This is not quiet praise. This is not Sunday morning local church quiet praise. This is adoration, exaltation. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And then John says, and I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Who are they worshipping? They're worshipping Jesus. He is alive. He is testified to in heaven. The angels will bow down and declare this. We will join in them in this anthem of praise. And church, if that's true, and it is, then this should be what we set our minds on now. This should be what changes our lives now. Listen, I know I am forgiven. Now, I know that if you're a believer, you are forgiven of all of your sins, past, present, future. But don't you want to walk in a way that is pleasing to the Lord presently because of that? Don't you want to be a joy to the Lord presently? And on the day when he returns, don't you want to be caught doing his will? Not repenting of sin? We should be like the angels. We should be incapable of keeping this message quiet. We should be eager to verify this supernatural message. So let me ask you this. Is your mind fixed on this? Are you setting your mind on this daily? And if you are, are you declaring it with boldness, without shame, like Mary and the other ladies on the day of the resurrection? I believe that if you set your mind on this, It will sanctify your life. There's no formula for sanctification. You don't do three steps to become a holy person. The scriptural directive is look to Christ. Focus on Christ. Who he is. What he did. What he promises. That will set you apart. And that will make you his messengers. That's the the motive for evangelism, is it not? Evangelism is nothing more than an act of worship. We want to declare how great our God is and share him with others. I think that's what will sanctify us if we think about this. 
I think it'll sanctify our conversations if you think about the one who died and rose again and is coming to gather you to himself. I think you'll live differently presently in this age. You'll be ready to declare his glory. Just keeping your mind fixed upon that will will guard you against so much trivial things, so many trivial ideas and thoughts and, and actions. We waste so much time on Facebook and TV, the Internet, recreation. None of those things are wrong in and of themselves. They're just wrong because we want them so much that we neglect Christ and his purposes for our life. All those can be used for the glory of God. But are we using them that way? I think the resurrection has a way of sanctifying all these things as we think about who it is we're serving. And thirdly, God's word teaches us that the resurrection of Christ was historical, it was supernatural, and it was, it is rather, physically hopeful. Jesus' resurrection was, was displayed physically for a purpose, for multiple purposes, but one purpose in particular, it was to give hope to the spiritually weary. And it still does that. When we feel like the, the life is, that we're living is caving in on us and there is no hope, we can remember that there is hope in Christ. He lives. He's ever interceding on our behalf. We're not alone. We have a living, loving, sovereign Savior. He is not leaving us when we go through the valley of the shadow of death. He is with us in the fiery furnace. He is with us all the time. We, we know that because of the resurrection. The testimony of his physical resurrection is hopeful. Look with me at 1 Corinthians 15 to see this. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1. Now understand, when, when Paul is writing to the Corinthians, I'm not going to go into the history of the, the Corinthian church. It was a mess. Okay, But within that church that was a mess, there was a remnant. There were the elect. There were the people of God who were wanting to follow God's direction, wanting to be faithful to God, but there were these false teachers who were trying to lead them astray. And they, they were wearied by this. They were wearied by their claims and by their ideologies that were coming into the church. And, and Paul is saying, I want to give you some hope here. I want to end this, this letter with some hope. Look what he says. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel, the gospel I preach to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. For I deliver to you as first importance. Now, church, there are some things that are important. There are some things, according to Paul here, that are of first importance, and this is it. Now, he's giving this to them to sanctify them. Understand this. They're being led astray. He's saying if you continue on in the faith, if you, you do this, you are being saved. It's evidence of your salvation. He said, but you must cling to this, not to these false teachings. It's of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he was buried and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep or died. Then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But 
by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Now, now notice something here. As he's focusing on the resurrection of Christ, according to the scriptures, he's saying, this is why I work so hard. This is what makes me get up every day and take beatings in the name of Jesus so I can declare his great worth and his power and his grace. By the grace of God, I am what I am. In other words, it's the power of Christ that's working through me through this gift that God's given me. This resurrected Savior's love that's pouring through me to these others in this church and to the lost. Scripture makes it clear that the doctrine of the resurrection is not just something you talk about at Easter. It's something you need to think about daily. The physical resurrection of Christ promises all those who believe in Him that they will have not only eternal life, but they'll be enabled to dwell here on earth in His grace, trusting in His life. And then one day, when He calls us all home, we'll be in His eternal presence Cloaked in a new life, a new body, because of the resurrection of Christ. We'll have a body, understand this, saints, we'll have a body that is it's enabled to dwell in God's holy presence. Because that body will be without sin because of Christ's resurrection. We'll be given a new body, a, a reclaimed body, one without sin, like Christ's, because of Christ. Look what it says, and stay there in Corinthians 15, further down in verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. But if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Now, everything is hinging on the resurrection of Jesus here. It says in verse 15, we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope, in this life only we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ, then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. Why? Because, for, he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. The physical resurrection of Jesus displays the good news of God's grace physically. It tells us that we will be able to dwell with him eternally. That death will not hold us in the grave. We'll be given a new body like Christ so that we can adore him for eternity. Now you think about it right now. Because of sin, 
there is a, a law of thermodynamics called entropy, and it means that all of our body parts, all of matter itself, is actually decomposing. It's falling apart. How could you spend eternity with Christ unless your body has been made new without sin? And that's what he's saying is going to happen because of Christ's resurrection. He is the first fruits of those who would never see corruption or death. Isn't that amazing news? But my question is, you know, is that just amazing news for the future or does that change the way you want to use your bodies presently? You're the temple of the Holy Spirit. You should want to live differently. You should want to use your body to glorify him presently, not just in the future. Our bodies will be like Christ's, but we belong to Christ now, even in this fallen, corrupt, fleshly body. It's still his. Therefore, glorify God in your body by what you do, by what you say, by what you listen to. One day he'll give us a body that can worship him without end. It'll be like drinking from a fire hydrant all the time and we'll be able to do it. We'll be able to stand in his presence and honor him and not be consumed by him because our flesh will be made new. Look what it says in Revelation 21. This is what it will be like. John in Revelation 21 verse 22, he's speaking about the new Jerusalem or the heavenly state to come. In which we will dwell in bodies. Christians will be given new bodies. We will be raised to worship God in a new body. We'll be toiling with real hands, real feet for the glory of God without sin motivating anything we do. Imagine that. He'll nourish us physically. And sometimes we don't think about heaven like that. Sometimes we think of heaven as this amorphous place that where you go and you float around playing harps. That's not it, because I don't want to go there anyway. I want to go to some place where Christ is there reigning and leading and giving us purpose for eternity to worship him with our hands and our minds. And, and that's the future, but isn't that to be the desire of the present? Whatever you do, whether you teach, whether you fly a plane, whether you build a house, whatever it may be, let it be done to bring him honor through your body through your motives, through your attitudes, through your actions, because of this promise that's given here to us about the future in Revelation 21, 22. John writes, I, I saw no temple in this city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for, for the glory of God gives it light. Its lamp is the Lamb. By its light the nations walk. And the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And the gates will never be shut by day. And there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter it. Nor anyone who does what is detestable or false. But only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be, will there be 
anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. And his servants will worship him. They, they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. Now, saints, that's our heritage. That's our inheritance, rather. And if, if you're rich toward God through these things, how should you steward what he's given you presently? This is, this is the promise. Do we live in light of the promise? Do we live in such a way that we will bring him worship now through our lives? Trusting in him to care for us. This is our future. But I think it should affect the way we live presently. I think this, biblically speaking, I think that if you're not heavenly minded, you will be no earthly good. If you're not thinking about the one who reigns from glory, who reigns in our hearts, who reigns on this earth as the sovereign one, if you're not focused on him and his promises, you will live this life like simply an unbeliever will live their life. Just for the goal of tomorrow, just for the riches of the pleasures of the flesh. But when you're focused on this, on who it is that bought you and who it is that reigns and lives evermore interceding for you, you, you want to live differently. And this is, this is Paul's, I think, argument in Colossians 3, 1 to 4. Set your mind on the things above where Christ is. He is your Lord. And if he is your Lord in glory, he's your Lord presently. And we need to live in light of that. Now, brothers and sisters, listen. If we, if we do this, if we set our minds on what the Bible teaches us about who Christ is, I truly believe, according to Scripture, that it will transform us. It will transform the way we live personally. Not just theologically. It's good to be theologically right. But if it doesn't get to your feet, you've just been puffed up with knowledge. Paul says in Colossians 3, 1 to 4, that that's exactly what thinking about these things will do. It will change the way you live. You'll see it next week as I go into the rest of this chapter in Colossians 3. You'll see that if you're setting your minds on Christ, you're going to put off the deeds of the flesh. You're going to put on the things that glorify Christ. You're going to love your wives differently. You're going to love your husbands differently. You're going to care for your kids differently. You're going to work for your employers differently. You have a different motive a different attitude because of what Christ has done. And your focus is on that. That's what he's arguing for. That's what I'm arguing for this morning. Now, listen, I, I would like to say, because I'm talking about this, that I do this all the time. But I don't. And so this is, this is a good rebuke of me. But I'm probably not much different than most of you. And I think that if I need this, we all probably need this. We need to set our minds on who Jesus Christ is. Not just the cross. The cross is, is the beginning point where we begin to rejoice. But we look to the resurrection and an empty cross that causes us to go on living for his glory because he's a living Savior who is sovereignly at work, personally at work in our lives. That's my, my fourth point coming up here. I think that's what the Bible teaches. It teaches us that, number four, the resurrection of Jesus 
is not only eternally hopeful, it's personally transformational. All those who believe in Christ's resurrection, or all those who trust in Christ's resurrection, are transformed spiritually and personally. I said are transformed, not might be, not will be. They are or they're not born again. You don't become a, a disciple one day down the road after you're saved. No, you are a learner from regeneration forward. If you believe in the resurrection of Christ, your life eternally is changed and presently it's being transformed. If it's not, you need to examine yourself to see if you truly have repented of your sins and trusted in Christ alone. If people can hear the message about Jesus Christ and his resurrection and go on sinning without any repentance, they have no reason to believe that they are Christians. End of story. The new birth, regeneration means new birth. The new birth brings about personal transformation. Now, I can prove that biblically. I can show you biblically by an example or two, but I'm going to show you one in particular in a moment. But listen, what we need to realize is what it says in Romans 6. Go there with me. When, when we're saved, we are regenerated. We, we are given a new heart. Salvation is not just God saying, okay, I'm going to take you to heaven your mind now. No, he's, he's given us a new life, a new heart, a new affection. And he's not taking us home yet. So he's intending for that new heart to transform the way we live presently, personally. When you're saved, you're regenerated. You're transformed by Christ's resurrection power. It's his living power that's working in us. Understand this. It's very important. His, his power. Listen, we're not, we're not out here on our own. We're anchored in heaven. There's a conduit to heaven, if you will, of Christ's power coming to us. And that power will be displayed in all those who are truly regenerated. Now, it's not perfected in us yet, but it is progressive. There will be change, transformation, repentance of sin, a longing for holiness, a hatred of sin. If that's not in our hearts, then we have no reason to believe that we are born again. Romans 6, 8. Now, if we die with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion or lordship over him. For the, the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members, your body parts, to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness, your body parts as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law but under grace what then are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace by no means that's the strongest language that paul could use to say absolutely no way do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves you are slaves of the one whom you obey either of sin which leads to death or of obedience which leads to righteousness but 
thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart. There it is. Colossians 3. Obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members, your body parts, as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. What's his argument for sanctification here? Well, he begins in verse 8. It's the resurrection of Christ. It's the new life you have in Christ. You've been regenerated. You've been given new life. Therefore, that life of Christ should reign in your hearts, in your lives. And again, it reigns from the inside out. He doesn't say just your heart needs to bow before Christ and be a Christian in your heart. No, he says it should change the, the way you live your life in your body parts. You need to be living your life in such a way that everything you do brings him honor and praise. That's, that's Paul's intention in giving us this here. It's to transform us personally. Now, the Apostle Paul was transformed personally by this. And I won't go into all that, but simply this. Paul, when he heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, he heard about the resurrection of Christ. He heard about the resurrection and he began to proclaim that resurrection immediately after he was regenerated. In Acts, it talks about how that he went out boldly declaring the resurrection immediately after he was saved. He did it with confidence. He did it with reckless abandonment, knowing that he had been putting people to death for this, yet he now went forward with boldness, knowing that Christ was worthy of all of his service. When we think about this, church, what I want you to understand is this message that, that Paul proclaimed with boldness, that Peter proclaimed with boldness, they did so because they were empowered by the resurrected Jesus. And they wanted to live a life that would magnify his greatness and his grace. And so my question is, if you have been saved by Christ, are you being radically transformed by his life? Are you living differently? Are you living in his resurrected power and under his authority? Are you willing to proclaim his message? Are you more than willing? Are you eager to proclaim his message? Do you want to honor him with your conversations, with your actions, with your motives, with your interactions with your employers and employees? Do you want to make much of Jesus by the way you live in this present age personally? I pray that's the case. I pray that we all want that this morning. And I think as we focus and set our minds on these things, things that are above, things that testify to the greatness of Christ, our personal lives will be changed. It's hard to entertain. <laughs> it's hard to entertain sin on our TV when you're thinking about the resurrection of Christ. When you're thinking about the glorious one, the holy one, who died for the very things that are entertaining our eyes, feeding our flesh. It's hard to, to go on in that. It's hard to hold a grudge against a friend or a an enemy, for all that matters, uh, that does something wrong to us. When you know how much you've been forgiven in Christ, and you should forgive others, just as Christ has forgiven you. It's hard for you to neglect doing your duty, either at church or on your job, when you know that Christ has called you to be a witness 
to testify to your fellow workers and boss and church members that Christ is your Lord whom you serve. If you're thinking about those things, the desire of the flesh will be mortified, put to death. But church, we've got to get our minds fixed on these things. And that does require discipline. You, you, you don't become sanctified. You don't become one who's conformed to the image of Christ by going home every night and spending four hours watching TV and neglecting God's word. You don't have a means of grace in sleeping. You need to be praying. Naps are wonderful. I enjoy them. But they're not spiritual. When I could be praying for the saints interceding for the lost, and yet I choose uh, a little little sleep, a little folding of the hands, right? A little slumber. They're not, those things aren't wrong in and of themselves, but when I put them as more important than what God's called me to do here presently, it's not going to sanctify me. And what you'll find is the more you set these things on your heart, these truths about Christ, the more you'll want to know about Christ, the more you'll want to share about Christ with others. It will change everything in your life when you set your minds on Christ. When you set your mind on his humble incarnation, his sacrificial substitution, and his glorious resurrection, it will cultivate true and biblical sanctification in your heart. Let me put it this way. In the words of Matt Papa, he wrote a song about the resurrection of Christ. He wrote this, Speaking of the resurrection, he says, if this is true, this changes everything. If this is real, I've got to tell the world. If he is God, then I've got a choice to make. If I believe, then I must follow him. And if you believe in this resurrection, and the one who is resurrected, Jesus Christ, as your Lord and Savior, then you should expect and long to honor him presently personally, through your life and your behavior. I think that's what Paul's arguing for in Colossians 3. He's saying these legalistic means will not obtain what God can do through the resurrected power of Christ in the believer's heart. Trust in Christ. Look to Christ. You'll see your life conformed more and more into his image. You're equipped by a Savior who lives and loves you. Just think about that. Just think about this. Your, your Christian life this is amazing. Your Christian life is empowered by Jesus. Think about that. When you struggle, when you fall, when you fail, when you excel, Christ is there picking you up, cleaning you off, strengthening you for the fight. He is with us. He's alive, church. And he is reigning through us who believe. I want to just give him thanks for that. And I, I truly want to repent of not, not setting my mind on things about Christ like I should. And I pray that we would all do that this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word is true. Your power is great. And our hope is secure in Christ. And through, through what you've given us in your word and through Christ's resurrection, we have hope. Not only for heaven, but for present sanctification. To be useful here 
on earth as we seek to set our minds on things above so that we can serve you and we can honor Christ and we can reach out to the lost and declare the gospel that brings sinners transformation, eternal transformation and present sanctification. We ask you, Lord, to to bless the reading of your word and the hearing of your word this morning. For the glory of Jesus' name, amen.